This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Radio National, hi, I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines. This week, primitive communism. Anthropologist Manveer Singh explains why the idea that societies were naturally egalitarian and communal before farming is appealing, but wrong. William Stoltz discusses a regrettable necessity, his new paper on ACES and Australian security. How, when and why should future covert action be used? But we begin with the conflict in Ukraine. Day by painful day, Russia's invasion and violent occupation of Ukraine grinds on, but increasingly beyond the daily attention of headline writers and primetime producers. You know the broad brushstrokes, of course, of what's happening, the Ukrainian campaign and counterpunch, the pleas for more weapons more urgently from NATO allies, the battle for survival still in cities in the Luhansk, and the exodus of Ukrainian citizens into neighbouring nations and beyond. Kira Rudik is leader of the Holos or Voice Party in Ukraine and an MP in its national parliament. She's travelling in Western Europe currently, advocating for the Ukrainian war effort. Kira, thanks for joining us. How much of a risk is it that the conflict churns on, as you mentioned, out of people's attention and settles to a kind of stalemate with neither side achieving real victory? but inflicting daily damage nevertheless. Well, the risks uh, are there. And this is one of my messages to the world right now. I do not want the conflict to become a new normal. This war uh, should not become new normal for Europeans, for for the people of the world. And this is this would be extremely hard to achieve because this is on Putin's plan. He would want to people to forget. He would want to make it same way as there was the war uh, that was in Ukraine for eight years, uh, where basically uh, the world was watching uh, at this and saying, "Yeah, well, things happen." So this is one of my goals as politician, one of my goals as, as uh, political leaders to make sure that uh, this wouldn't happen. There have been some big announcements in the past days. The latest news from Washington that the US President Joe Biden has confirmed more US weaponry is on its way. Uh, advanced rocket systems, longer range precision guided munitions. Now that, of course, is a move that Moscow has labelled an escalation. But can you explain, Ms. Rudik, what would those weapon systems mean for fighters on the ground in Ukraine? So to put it in very simple words, Russians can shoot their missiles far away and we can only uh, shoot uh, our bullets very closely. So we need to get close to them with risks to our lives. So it's very easy. It makes uh, the wide range weapon make it for us the better way to fight and the ability to fight them back. And this is why it's so important. This is why it was so critical for us to get them. Because uh, you said about stalemate. Well, emotionally and uh, logistically, we are not ready for stalemate. We are ready to fight. We have this ability and intention to fight them back from our land. When you think about it, we didn't do anything wrong. We are uh, living uh, in our country and they invaded and we need all abilities to push them back. What worries me here is that 
you know, it's only right now when we started receiving the weapons that we were promised like three months ago. And every time you're thinking about the politicians making statements three months ago, we just received what they promised us. So with longer range weapons, and uh, it will take time before we get them. And uh, during this time, during the logistics times, our people will be dying there. This is why my next move my next concern would be to make sure that the logistics works perfectly that it's much better that we uh, we we get uh, weapons here as fast as possible from uh, russia's perspective ms rudik the energy firm gazprom has said it will halt gas to denmark's orsted and to shell for its contract to supply gas to germany after both companies refused the request from moscow that they make payments in rubles now that follows of course moscow turning off the gas to poland to bulgaria to finland and and the netherlands under that kind of pressure that must really elevate your concerns that the EU's resolve might weaken. Well, no, you know, uh, I'm uh, less concerned about about that because, you know, we have been talking to the world leaders, European leaders uh, since the last year, when we were telling them that no matter if Putin would invade or would not invade, he will definitely use uh, weapons, uh, use energy as weapons against them. So even if there was no war in Ukraine, he would still ramp up the prices. He would still block the transportation. He will still make sure that he uh, uses it as a leverage. So even if like imagine that uh, the war in Ukraine is over, what force in the world does stop Putin from uh, not fulfilling his contracts? from uh, uh, pressuring the Western countries because he has the upper hand. There is no such force. And this is the main issue of uh, modern times, that there is no force in the world that would make Putin to keep his word. And this is why the countries need to readjust to that, no matter if there is war in Ukraine or not. The reliance on Russian energy resources needs to stop. Otherwise, the risk will always be there. How we imagine it like in three years that people still like hoping every winter that Putin would not turn the pipe uh, and and the gas flow? Are we are we like this is something that we want to rely on? Ms. Rudik, you've been to some of those most affected towns in Ukraine, Bucha among them. Can I ask you to give us a sense of what you saw there, how that experience has affected you and how those who've survived what went on there are coping? So I've been to Bucha on the first day of liberation after uh, Russian soldiers were pushed back. I have seen bodies alongside the road. I have seen bodies of dead women who were tried to be burned to cover to what happened to them when they were alive. I have uh, talked to people whose uh, family members were shot in front of them. I have talked to women who were raped in front of their children. I have I've witnessed so much pain and terror and atrocities that it's it's just hard to forget and we should never forget. I went there because I want to be a witness. At some point, I want to be a witness at Putin's trial and tell them everything that I have seen. We right now are helping out the survivors. We're making sure that they get everything that they need. However, we should all understand that there are some things that cannot be fixed. 
There's an effort, of course, by a number of organisations to collect evidence for any future war crimes trials from villages, towns like Bucha, where there's been this violent persecution, torture, murder, rape of Ukrainian citizens, as you describe. Your country's chief prosecutor, Irina Venet-Diktova, says as many as 15,000 suspected war crimes have been reported since the war began. What confidence do you yourself have that those responsible will one day face international institutions and be held accountable for their actions? We have already at least two soldiers prosecuted by Ukrainians law. So and we'll be moving forward with that. However, we understand that 15,000 cases will have to, will take time. And this is why it's so important to start to start early. And, it, and that's why the support from international community would be so important because we will need the resources to make sure that these things happen in a timely manner. You've expressed particular horror at how rape appears to have become a weapon of war in Ukraine. What evidence have you seen that sexual violence was a deliberate strategy by Russian forces? We have seen it every, everywhere. So it's not that it happened in one or two places. We have seen it everywhere in every occupied village. And the witness, uh, the, the witnesses that were telling us that uh, the statements of Russian soldiers were, you are the dirt and we are cleaning this land from the dirt. Or they were saying, we want to rape Ukrainian women up to the point when they are not able to bear Ukrainian children. So it was a genocidal, an intentional genocidal act in your view? Uh, absolutely. And we are pushing for, uh, right now there are six countries that already uh, acknowledge that what's happening in Ukraine is genocide. But all in all, we are pushing to make sure that this, this is uh, wor- worldwide acknowledges gen- genocide. You know, uh, this is the first time in probably world's history when it is uh, not covered by Putin, but it's advertised by him that what he's committing is uh, war crimes, atrocities, and he is actually awarding the uh, soldiers who are committing those crimes. So he's publicly awarding them. And this is one of the proofs that it is strategical for them. Russia now occupies almost all of Luhansk and it's focusing on Donetsk. Now, influential voices in the realm of international politics, I'm thinking here of Henry Kissinger, for example, have expressed the view that Ukraine must be willing to give up some territory to bring the war to an end. How would you respond to those suggestions? Well, there was no support of Kissinger's statements. More, more over every possible and impossible politician is trying to stay away from that as uh, something that he said without thinking. And uh, I can assure you that Ukraine is not willing to give up any of the territories. How difficult will it be to persuade those estimated 6 million Ukrainians who fled to come home, that it's safe now, come home and rebuild? You know, I have talked to people in the refugee camps and all of them want to come back home. So I think the only uh, obstacle that we would have is that if they will start new life and like settle down somewhere. But all of them right now want to return to their motherland. So I don't think it will be very hard to persuade people to come back once it will be safe. If one of Putin's main aims was to keep Ukraine out of NATO... Uh, when he launched this attack. Has he won on that front, do you think? 
Mm, no, I think there need to be a new alliance, maybe different than NATO, that will help Ukraine with its security. And I think uh, Finland uh, and uh, Sweden joining NATO uh, made it exactly the opposite of what Putin wanted to achieve. How does it end then, Ms. Rudik? How, how does this, how does the fighting stop? How do the other Russians made to leave? We win. We fight till the end. We get the support. We get the weapons and we win. Thank you very much, Kira Rudik, for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good one. Goodbye. Kira Rudik, the Ukrainian MP who's in Western Europe trying to drum up support for her country's fight against Russia. ABC Radio National. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris. And coming up next on Between the Lines, as China expands its influence into the Indo-Pacific, does Australia need to counter by expanding its own use of covert action? William Stoltz joins me in a moment to discuss his new paper, A Regrettable Necessity. you weren't aware, Australia's spies are celebrating a birthday. That's right, it's the 70th anniversary of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, or ASIS. And as you do on birthdays, that's prompted a bit of self-examination and pondering of the future. Uh, One prominent academic at the National Security College has chosen the occasion to call for a review of policies governing Australia's use of covert action. Dr William Stoltz, hello. Thanks for taking the time to speak to Between the Lines. Kylie, it's a pleasure to join you and your audience. Now, I'll ask you to define first, just so we're all clear on this, what do you mean when you talk about covert action? We know it's a tool in the spycraft kit, but what is it specifically? Many of your listeners are probably aware of the phrase espionage, which it typically refers to the stealing of secrets. And in in Australia's case, uh, or in the case of our foreign spy agency, ASIS, this is about stealing the secrets of other countries. But there's another function which we broadly describe as covert action. And that's about, I suppose, secretly shaping the activities and facts on the ground that are happening overseas. So we can describe covert action broadly as um, the, I guess, intervention in the affairs of other states or non-state actors in a way that's meant to be hidden or deniable. And what kind of means might be employed generally? to steal secrets covertly? Well, um, for the stealing of secrets uh, through through activities like espionage, it generally involves the cultivation of a human source. So people close to the information that you're after, uh, that might be people well embedded within, you know, senior levels of leadership within a foreign country and these sorts of things. When it comes to covert action, these activities that are about actively kind of shaping um, a foreign target, 
this, this can include a myriad of different things. This can include anything from um, distributing propaganda to uh, secretly funding political candidates to get the political outcome that you're after, all the way through to things that we'd be perhaps more familiar with and would recognise as uh, military special operations. So secret military operations typically undertaken under the context of an otherwise declared military action. So covert action um, can cover a very broad range of things. Um, and in the Australian system, we have the Secret Intelligence Service, which plays a role in that. But we also have other agencies as well, such as the Australian Signals Directorate, which is responsible for things like offensive cyber operations. So that's covert action that occurs in an online environment. Um, and through to the other intelligence services and even other parts of government as well can from time to time be called upon to engage in um, covert action in support of Australia's efforts overseas. Now, in the paper you've just published, you argue that now is the time to take another look at Australia's approach to covert action and indeed to change some policies around the management of it. Why now? That's right, yeah. So Australia's approach to covert action I've conceived of as kind of falling into three different eras historically. So we can kind of think from the 50s to the 70s in the in the period of the Cold War, where Australia's covert action, principally through agencies like ACES, was about supporting our allies and friends abroad, typically in the distribution of propaganda, political action, and counterinsurgencies. Then we kind of got into an era from the 80s up until uh, 2001 and the war on terror, where Australia's approach to COVID action was pretty limited. Um, and then from 2001 into the present, we've had um, the war on terror and these counterinsurgency operations abroad, which has really meant that the work of agencies like ACES and ASD has been about supporting the military to disrupt threats in an otherwise declared military uh, operation. However, we're experiencing a new challenge today, which is uh, the People's Republic of China, their very comprehensive, uh, very aggressive and unrestrained use of interference in the countries of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. You know, these are the countries that are at the forefront of the kind of great competition for the future of the Indo-Pacific. And China's activities in these countries is very destabilising um, and potentially uh, will threaten Australia's national interests and the interests of those countries, which are very much going to determine what the future of our region looks like. And so I argue that as a result of that, Australia needs to be prepared to engage in a, in a more robust approach to covert action to counter the People's Republic of China in these countries and either disrupt their intervention in these countries or expose it. So how does a democratic government indulge in more covert action but still differentiate itself from the behaviour of authoritarian states where it is more widely used, less prone to public examination? How do we keep ourselves nice in that kind of an environment? Yeah, it's a really, really important question actually because at that tactical level, sometimes the activities are indistinct in the sense that if you're distributing propaganda and they're distributing propaganda, what's the difference? The difference is in Australia's system and the system of the United States and the United Kingdom, which is similar to ours, is that our agencies conduct this with a robust uh, degree of oversight. So we have institutions like the Inspector General for Intelligence and Security. We have parliamentary committees 
Um, and we also have ministerial accountability, as well as, of course, the courts and things like royal commissions to scrutinise and oversee these activities, um, both in terms of how they're legally conducted in accordance with Australia's own laws, but also what is often called probity, which is about the kind of ethical and proportionate nature of these activities. So to give you an example, um, the former one of the former CIA directors, uh, William Webster, came up with a couple of key questions that he would always ask himself uh, and put to the National Security uh, Committee in the United States about um, proposed covert activities. So he would ask, is it legal? Is it consistent with the foreign policy of the day? Is it consistent with national values? And if it were to be made public, could it be defensible? And he would use these questions to kind of scrutinise the probity of whether or not he should authorise these sorts of covert activities. By contrast, in the Chinese system, uh, and most covert action, as we would describe it, is typically undertaken by the Ministry of State Security in the Chinese system, uh, there is no such measures. You know, the judicial system in, in China is entirely arbitrary. Uh, any sense of transparency or democratic oversight simply doesn't exist. And more importantly as well, the activities that they are undertaking are often not very well coordinated or strategic with their larger foreign policy goals and are often susceptible to individuals, individual officers within the MSS undertaking activities kind of for their own career advancement or to appease or appeal to their kind of political patrons within the Chinese Communist Party. So there's a very different kind of organisational culture and, and there is, a, to my mind, an absence of the type of rigorous, rigorous oversight and contestability that would make these activities um, justifiable in the way that we would understand them in our system. I guess, as you point out, public opinion too, of course, plays a role here in any change in the governance around intelligence services and covert, the use of covert action. And I guess post the Iraq war, not to mention other intelligence episodes at the Sheraton in Melbourne, in East Timor and beyond, there may not be the groundswell of support for Australia's covert campaigns to support the loosening of laws you're referencing. I mean, how do intelligence services make a case for that change? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very valid point, and it's actually something that um, in a in an interview a couple of months ago, it's something that the Director General of ASIS himself actually acknowledged that because ASIS is not well understood by the Australian public, it doesn't have a kind of reservoir of trust or good feeling amongst the Australian public, so that when when or if its activities become publicly known, there isn't really a wellspring of um, support and understanding to draw from. So that's kind of why you can see that uh, himself and other agency heads are actually engaging in more public activities. So the Director General of ACES, Paul Simon, recently gave a public speech at the Lowy Institute where he spoke fairly expansively about ACES's role and where it finds itself in a, in a kind of more hostile world. And we've also seen agencies like um, the Australian Signals Directorate and ASIO as well undertake more public activity to try and build up a degree of public understanding. Um, but I think that has its limits in the sense that there's only so much that uh, these public officials can discuss. And there's also a sense that they're often not going to be the best advocates for their own work because people will you know, view, um, view what they're saying with a grain of salt because they're coming from a vested interest which is actually why 
it's important, I think, for academics to be scrutinizing these things, to be publishing in a kind of robust way that takes the historical sources that we have, bring it to the public's attention and scrutinize how past governments have made decisions around these things. Paul Simon, in that speech to the Lowy Institute, talked about the need to train and employ more intelligence officers in order to try and uh, increase our capabilities. Are those kinds of recruits in good supply to carry out the kind of covert action you describe? Well, it's a pretty it's a pretty remarkable kind of Venn diagram of skills and attributes that you need to get a good intelligence officer. You need someone who's able to think creatively, be independently minded um, and resilient on the ground, uh, but also, you know, be able to be highly technically proficient. Something that Paul Simon spoke about in his speech was the the sense that many of his intelligence officers uh, now now need to be quite adept at, um, you know, complex uh, things like in, encrypted communications and these sorts of things. So it's it's a pretty difficult overlap of skill sets that they're seeking to acquire, um, and it comes at a time when the national intelligence community writ large in Australia is growing very rapidly and is seeking people for all sorts of roles. So finding good intelligence officers is a really difficult task. Um, And as I argue in my paper, um, we probably do need to see an expansion in the funding and the size of ACES so that they are able to stand up to meet the challenge of of the time that we're presented with. And that's that's not going to be an easy feat, particularly because Uh, Not only do you need to find people that have got that confluence of different skill sets, but you also need to subject them to pretty rigorous security clearances as well, which can take um, sometimes over a year or or more to to bring people into the organisation. So it's, it's, it's no mean feat. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Dr Will Stoltz from the National Security College. Um, Dr Stoltz, Paul Simon also talked about a change in the environment that intelligence officers are working in. He noted that emerging technologies are posing a near existential risk to the work of services such as ACES, with Australia's covert activities becoming increasingly discoverable. Now, if that's so, and I guess he should know, and covert activities are now increasingly discoverable because of these new technologies, is that the time, is now the time to put more eggs then in the covert action basket if it's that much harder to do it effectively and not be caught out? Well, I think there's always going to be a place for uh, human activities. You know, there's a lot of emphasis put on what can be done in the cyber realm to offensive cyber and the collection of cyber intelligence. And there are those that would say, well, we can invest in those things and and not have to expand what we do um, for the collection of human intelligence and in-person activities. But the reality is, is that there is always going to be those little gems, those little insights that you can only collect by getting close to a person, that you can only get by being in the room when discussions are happening, to be able to read body language, to be able to understand the nuances of people's personal relationships. These are the types of insights that human intelligence brings to bear that you cannot collect in a cyber domain. And you know, of course, there are there are more and more ways to be able to expose people. So, for example, you know, we all have social media accounts now. We all have digital footprints, and then in addition to that, we're seeing the prolifer- proliferation of um, systems that can collect biometric data and are not able, not only able to, you know, recognize your face 
uh, but also able to identify the way you walk through CCTV footage and these sorts of things. So you can see how these types of technologies are obviously quite an impediment to how you undertake human intelligence operations. And so I don't think that means that human intelligence is dead and is a thing of the past. But I think what it probably does mean is that the risk appetite of officials who are approving these things up to and including prime ministers and ministers probably needs to change uh, because operating on an assumption that you can undertake these things with zero risk probably means that you never undertake them. And as a result, you're missing opportunities to collect vital information, vital insights that might actually um, either help you make a better decision or in extremists potentially save lives. So I don't think it's an either or proposition of whether or not uh, human intelligence activities are done, but it probably just means that we need to look at the operating environment as it is and say it is more hostile, it is more uncertain, but our national interests are still our national interests uh, and therefore we have to find ways to um, continue to pursue them regardless. I guess that's the political reality you're describing, isn't it, in the sense that the risks may well be higher, the rewards are um, not always guaranteed but potentially significant. So you have to change the political framework around or the idea of risk and what what's worth agreeing to, what's worth supporting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the case of covert action, there's often an assumption that uh, undertaking covert action is in, inherently more risky than other activities. But that's not always the case. Um, there are some things that you can do covertly that are um, potentially quite low risk, and that does include things like shaping the information environment um, by, you know, uh, putting out propaganda, misinformation, um, or even just, you know, helping to work with journalists and other people in the field to better understand activities. So, uh, and measure of covert action that I would like to see more of, and I think we actually are beginning to see more of, is simply just exposing the activities of particularly China and Russia in how they are interfering in other countries. And that's actually not always that risky activity. That's simply taking the intelligence that you've collected and finding a way to get it into the public domain. So we've seen that in the case of the war in Ukraine, where um, the CIA and MI6 and other intelligence agencies have worked with media outlets to bring intelligence that previously would have been secret out into the open so that people can understand more deeply what's going on on the ground. Uh, and there's probably an extent to which some of that has started to happen as well in relation to China's activities in the Pacific. Another note, on, on in your paper, you elevate the case for covert action, of course, in order for Australia to deter China. And you write that providing clarity about the strategic intent of friendly and unfriendly countries across the Indo-Pacific. Now, one could argue, though, that effective gumshoe diplomacy has had a fairly good outcome for Australia, even in this past week. Um, not only that, but the potential for damage to Australia's reputation at a time when things are so finely drawn really can't be underestimated. There are moral dilemmas here, aren't there, that could endanger, imperil historic alliances. Yeah, th there's certainly a very important moral dimension to covert action, you know, in the sense that often it comprises undertaking activities that might be um, in some cases uh, illegal or deceptive to um, friends and partners, these sorts of things. But on the other hand, it might be the, the only option that a government has to protect lives 
or to prevent an outcome that might be quite seriously detrimental to the national interest. And that's why I argue that the process for undertaking COVID action in the Australian system needs to be much more internally contestable. It needs to have lots of other voices from across other different government agencies and departments in the room contesting proposals for COVID action before they're undertaken, but also to make sure that those things are strategically aligned. Because as you mentioned, you know, uh, Australia is undertaking all manner of different activities, whether they be, you know, use of um, uh, foreign aid, um, trade agreements, other public diplomacy campaigns, all these things that are happening in an overt, um, uh, publicly available way. So any any covert activity that you undertake needs to be supporting that. It needs to be coherent and aligned with those activities, not separate to them. And when you look at the history of these sorts of activities, whenever they tend to fail, it is often when they are not strategically aligned with the larger foreign policy goals of, of the country. And it's often when they have not been internally scrutinized and contested. So that's why I argue that there needs to be a creation of either a centre or some type of, of committee that comprises inputs from the various different departments, including the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but also the Department of Defence, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, um, and any other kind of affected agencies or departments. Because the reality is, is while these activities are very top secret and need to be undertaken by people who are properly trained through organisations like ACES and ASD, they are part of a larger national effort um, and therefore need to be um, looked at through the lens of, you know, the totality of Australia's power and influence in the world and made, and to um, test whether these things are really exactly what we want to be doing at the time. So I, I, I agree with you that, you know, there are certainly risks there and that's why um, we need to make sure that these things are really contestable within government. And it's why I've also argued that there needs to be a higher degree of parliamentary understanding of what Australia's covert action policy is. Um, so I'm not uh, advocating that parliamentarians necessarily get to scrutinise the individual, you know, tactical level of the operations, but I think it's important that um, organisations like the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, for example, that that committee be uh, briefed in by the government of the day of what its broad policy settings are when it comes to covert action. Because at the moment, um, that committee, which is very important for our national security, that committee doesn't get that type of insight. Will Stoltz, thanks so much for joining us. Kylie, it's been a pleasure. William Stoltz, Manager of Policy Engagement at the ANU National Security College, and we've been discussing his paper published this week, A Regrettable Necessity, The Future of Australian Covert Action. We'll post a link to it on the Between the Lines homepage. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. And up next, anthropologist Manveer Singh discusses primitive communism, a seductive idea that he argues is wrong. entrapment by modern life and before we began to farm, our lives were simple but hard. We lived communally, 
practicing egalitarian values in harmony with nature and with each other. Now, it's an alluring and widely held view, but as my next guest argues, this notion of our distant ancestors practicing a form of primitive communism is quite wrong. To discuss his insights and the research, I'm joined by Manveer Singh. Uh, he's an anthropologist and postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study in Toulouse in France, and he gained his PhD at Harvard. Manveer, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kylie. Now, where did this notion of primitive communism come from? How, how was it popularized? It's a bit difficult to track its intellectual history, partly because it is so deeply ingrained. So you find it, for instance, in the work of Adam Smith. You find it in some older anthropological texts. You even find it, for instance, in some old um, Buddhist reconstructions or understandings of of deep history or the time before the state. So it's an idea that is quite ingrained in not only Western culture, but like a larger intellectual tradition. But it was probably most famously articulated by Engels in The Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State, which was a book that he wrote using Marx's notes. And that book advanced many ideas that have become quite popular, but among them was this notion that there was a time before the state, um, before agriculture, or at the beginnings of agriculture, in which people lived in a kind of primitive communistic arrangement. Manvi, why is it so difficult to piece together the origin story, if you like, of this notion of primitive communism? Do you think we've been doing a lot of kind of rewriting of early history to satisfy our own kind of modern day political preferences? Yeah, so I think one major difficulty is that until, for instance, the 1960s, people didn't have a great systematic understanding of what human societies actually look like, of what non-agricultural societies looked like, what societies, small-scale forager societies looked like. And so a lot of the work that was being done was essentially a political project, was people had particular ideological aims and they told particular stories about the state of nature or about the way human societies long had been to push particular ends. So if I want to critique existing institutions, a great way to do that is to say that they are some kind of corruption or deviation from a more idealistic past. Take us through the idea. I mean, what does primitive communism generally mean and how has it been interpreted? What, it, what has it been interpreted to describe? Yeah, so it means different things to different people. At the basis is this idea that there is obligatory sharing, there is minimal property, there is open access to the resources, the necessities of life. Then it takes on different shades. Um, according to one version, people might say that, yes, individuals have personal possessions, they have tools, they have clothes, but they do not privately own land um, or privately owned wild privately owned wild resources. Another version might say that um, it's a version or it's a a form of sharing and distributing resources where uh, kind of a, a prehistoric notion of from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. So there are many shades, but I think what they share is this notion that there is minimal property, there's open access to, to the resources of life, and there's 
pretty widespread, even obligatory sharing. So let's get to why you're sceptical about this notion of primitive communism. What have you uncovered? What's the evidence against it? Yeah, so the best evidence comes from recently observed hunter-gatherer societies. And so uh, an argument that I make, a point that I make is that, in fact, if we look at some recent hunter-gatherer societies, some societies that anthropologists observed in the early and mid 20th century, we do find what really seems to approach a kind of economic communalism. We find societies in which individuals go out, they collect resources, and then they come back and they actually distribute them according to, to who is in the most need. So one point that I do want to make is that there are some societies, very rare societies, that, that do approach our ideal of, of primitive communism. But hunter-gatherer societies have been incredibly diverse, and these are probably the minority. They are, they are the extreme end in, um, uh, if we wanted to have a dimension from totally communalistic to totally privately structured. So yes, although a couple societies do exhibit a kind of incredible economic communalism, the rest had quite diverse and quite sophisticated notions of property. And, and again, they, they took many forms. In some societies, hunters had special rights over the resources they collected. Um, in other societies, individuals had particular property schemes over, over trees, over fish streams, uh, over wild resources, over knowledge. And so the argument that I that I really want to want to emphasize is that these societies that are our best models of prehistory are actually quite diverse and, and in many ways much more sophisticated in how they think about property, how they think about economic institutions than we often give them credit. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Manveer Singh, anthropologist and postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. And we're discussing his article on primitive communism, an idea he argues that is both seductive and wrong. Manveer, you're describing what sounds to me uh, to be a kind of sliding scale of communistic behaviour, if you like, at one end, and then a a notion of kind of more private ownership at the other. And what you're saying is that the critical mass of experience tends to fall down the end of private ownership rather than the end of kind of primitive communism. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And an important point is that even in those societies that appear to be the most communalistic. So in this article, I really focused on this one society, the Aceh. They were foragers, uh, who lived in lowland South America. And they really approached what we sometimes think about when we think of primitive communism. But even they still had some notions of property. They still had ownership over possessions. Even they distributed food, but after food was distributed, individuals owned it. And even as they became acculturated, individuals started to own own their meat more. Again, like I said at the beginning, different individuals have different notions of what primitive communism means. So there are some proponents of, of primitive communism who might say that everything I just described really embodies primitive communism. But yes, it's it's a continuum. And even those individuals on the most extreme version do have some property. Is this for you in part about debunking Marxist thought? I think it's 
it's less about debunking Marxist thought and more about more about questioning some of the politically convenient ideologies we put forward in our narratives about human history. But in this case, the political ideologies that you're referencing tend to be claims by Marxists. Yeah, they do. They do. Can you tell us a little more about the Ache norm, the primitive communism norm that you described? How do things work here once you've done a close study of other forager societies? How does their food distribution relationships power work? Yeah, so the Ache sharing system is, at least before acculturation, was quite astonishing. So men would go out, they would forage, they would kill tapers and all kinds of animals. They would bring them back. And then men were actually forbidden from eating any meat that they had acquired. And their wives and their children, they received the same as everyone else. Um, and they it, it was actually, if if you were to imagine the ideal, where of sh- ideal form of sharing, the Aceh seemed to embody it. So a particular individual brought back the food, the next individual butchered it, and then the third individual redistributed it. And after it was distributed, then there was a second round of dis- uh, redistribution to those individuals who were in greatest need. So again, if we, we can put this on one side of the continuum and then just change slight versions. So um, the anthropologist who studied the Aceh in greatest depth, Kim Hill, also studied another group, the Hiwi. The Hiwi are also lowland Amazonian foragers. But unlike the Aceh, when meat came in, it did not go to all of the families in a Hiwi village. It went to somewhere around 10% of the families. And the, the hunter ate more, the hunter's family ate more. And so that is a version, yeah, there's still redistribution, but it's a little bit more on the, the private end. Um, and so as we look at more and more societies, we we see this kind of diversity. We see that in some societies, hunters come back, they totally control their meat. In other societies, hunters come back and they are expected to share, but they use the sharing as a way of building social relationships. So yeah, they're they're sharing meat, but they're actually more using it as a as political capital. Um, the Aceh did not own wild resources. It doesn't seem like it, you know, they didn't own lakes or, or rivers or trees, but some foragers actually had very elaborate systems of dividing up the landscape. Um, and this, I think, is the greatest violation of primitive communism and is the greatest violation of some Marxist ideas of uh, a communistic state, a communistic world before agriculture. You know, these are societies in which individuals own the means of production. There's a great example by that you cite by Hill at one point where he's talking about pri- notions of private property and you quote uh, where he says, in the case of the Aceh, once the meat was handed out, if you were a tribe member who, you know, put the whatever tasty morsel you were going to eat down and then you had to go to the bush to go to the loo and you came back and someone had taken that, that was considered to be stealing. So right. that's the way he's, I guess, he's building in that idea of, yes, there was sharing, communal sharing, but once it was yours, it was private property. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and and that is an important point that even the Aceh, who seem to really embody primitive communism, they have property. 
in fact, sharing works because they have property. Once they distribute it, those individuals can be sure that they keep what they get. Um, and the Ajay don't only own meat, they also own their bows and their arrows, their cooking implements, their axes, their clothes. Women would own the fruit that they collected. Um, so yeah, this is the most primitively communistic society I, at least I could find and, and, you know, looking through the literature and on the basis of my own expertise that I was familiar with, but they still had quite a, quite an elaborate system of private property. Did anyone ever own the resources themselves? Like were there people who were, who owned the fishing sites or owned the trees um, where people foraged or owned whatever the spoils were that arrived from hunting in a particular area? Could they have individual rights over property in that sense? It seems from comparative studies that the majority of hunter-gatherer societies had the kind of mixed economy that you're describing. Uh, According to one economist's estimate, I think it was more than 70% of hunter-gatherers, of forager societies, recognized some ownership over land or over trees. And, you know, there are are some very well-known examples of of societies in which individuals owned fishing sites. There are a number of societies in which, which people owned particular trees as soon as they saw them. So for instance, the Andaman Islanders, when a man was, was walking through the forest and found a new tree that no one had owned, he could claim it from then on. It was his and his alone. No one was allowed to exploit it. Shoshone families could even own eagle nests. So an individual is, is walking along, they find an eagle nest, then they own it. Uh, various North American societies owned beaver dens. And this was a very interesting dynamic because then they had a motivation to manage it. You know, they don't want to overexploit it. They want to... take a certain number of beavers, but not enough to to deplete the resource. And that is a kind of uh, arrangement that many people don't imagine really occurs until long after the the origins of agriculture. So Manvi, if, as you argue, you know, there is this evidence that claims of widespread primitive communism don't really stack up as a, a perfect ideal that is historically accurate, why does that notion persist? I think it actually speaks to a, a larger problem or a, a larger issue, which is there are many stories we like to tell about human history, about human diversity, that from an anthropologist's perspective, I can recognize are often displaced. And I think a, a really major point is when a story spreads Often what's less important is whether it's factually true. And what's more important is that it's politically expedient. If I want to critique existing institutions, a very easy way is to say that modern society is a a perversion of a more idealistic, a more idyllic past. Yeah, so I think primitive communism succeeds because it's very politically convenient. It's it's a rosy picture of our past. People are both excited by, and, and I think a little touched by this picture that yes, we are truly pro-social, we are truly egalitarian. And when they want to critique in existing institutions, it's a pretty expedient way of doing that. So why does it matter? What, what are the impacts of us making up 
stories about the way people lived in the past in, a, in an idealistic way. What, what's the significance of that? Yeah, so I think there are two harms, or there are two harms that come to mind. The first is that it distracts us or it blinds us to actually understanding how human societies work. If our goal is to build societies that are more equitable or more free or that have more trust, it, I think, is more useful to, to look at a diversity of societies and see what are the variables that, that promote equity, that promote sharing, rather than to say that modern society is some corruption and, and at heart we are uh, sharers that, that I think is actually in many ways limiting in, in our aim of building better societies. So I think that's one limitation. The other is that it misrepresents human diversity. It misrepresents, honestly, in many cases, indigenous peoples. These are peoples who still live in the world today and they are often politically marginalized and they end up being misrepresented and, and simplified for people's own rosy pictures. Um, yeah, I, I think it flattens the incredible diversity and the incredible sophistication that people have brought in developing their societies and developing their economic institutions when we push simplistic narratives about them. So it's about not banging the drum of one philosophy over another, but more looking honestly at what the varying conditions were. Right, right. It's less about waving the banner of an idealistic past and more about understanding how it is that uh, human societies vary so that we can better understand how to build freer, more equitable societies. Yeah, it's less about banging the drum of a make-believe society and more about honestly understanding how human societies work. Manvir, thanks for your time. Lovely to talk. Yeah, thank you, Kylie. That's anthropologist Manvir Singh, postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. And that's the show. Thanks for your company. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer, who's on an extended break. I'll be back with more Between the Lines next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.